Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bullock. And happy 4th of July to everyone, although it's the 3rd of July as we're recording this. But many who will listen to this will be barbecuing or being irritated by cap guns and plastic swords at parades. I, if it was only cap guns last night, it was a small arsenal going off near me. Well, you live in an arsenal-like kind of social <laughs> context over there in, in Trevos, Pennsylvania. They're, they're a rambunctious lot. Yeah, we are. The revolution is still happening over there. I want to read an excerpt to you. Uh, this is probably similar to something you preached this morning, as I'm sure you preached the 4th of July sermon at your church. Well, I was dressed, actually, as George Washington. Okay, here we go. <laughs> this was preached by the Reverend Jonathan Mayhew. He was a Boston minister who um, had a great influence on John Adams. And uh, here was one of his sermons uh, during the Revolutionary War around that time. He recalled that King Charles had allowed crimes against God, such as sports on the Sabbath, or having encouraged people to have popishly affected clergymen as a preference to the good Puritans. He goes on to say that when a king turns tyrant and makes his subjects his prey to devour and to destroy, Instead of his charge to defend and cherish, we are bound to throw off our allegiance to him and to resist. That would be tyrannicide. Yes, that would be tyrannicide. Which John Calvin in the Institutes, I believe, offers, I don't know if it was the first defense of tyrannicide, but it, it was an early one. But one would hard, uh, his reference to Charles I, who would one hardly call a tyrant compared to many people that ruled. He was a good Christian, actually who uh, Cromwell beheaded. So, but that <coughs> revolution uh, actually was um, an inspiration for the American Revolution as well, the British Revolution, for those of you who may not remember that. As if, so Bill's saying, back when I was sitting, before I emigrated, <laughs> I emigrated, you know, as I was. So I want to ask the question today, should we have fought the War of Independence? 1776, could, should it have been a less dramatic and dynamic part of our history or not? Well, you know, uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that it was not a universally supported um, rebellion. Uh, John Adams, in a letter, uh, guessed that about a third of the colonists were for the revolution. A third were loyal to Great Britain, which we affectionately called Tories. And the third of the population didn't care. Uh, like a lot of people in the frontier weren't very excited about the British, nor were they very excited about the rich uh, uh, plantation owners either. So uh, there was a lot of indifference uh, to the war. Mark Knoll, in a book, who's a fabulous historian, a book called Christians in the American Revolution, said religiously Christians fell into four broad categories. Some supported the revolution enthusiastically because they were convinced that the Patriot cause was unequivocally righteous and perfectly consonant with Christian virtue. Some supported it more circumspectly. Um, they're troubled by the, what they saw as hypocrisy on the Patriot and inconsistency in the Patriot cause. Others saw loyalty to the crown as the only true Christian response, while still others, and I think Dickinson was one of these, right? That, um, believe that scripture condemns all violence and embraced pacifism and supported neither side. Right. Um, which Dickinson are you referring to? 
Uh, the, the signer from uh, from Pennsylvania. Oh, right. Yeah, you know, that's... Uh, was he a Quaker? He was a Quaker, um, but there were a lot of Quakers that were kind of... Um, who, who actually gave up their pacifism during the war. Uh, and uh, and it, was, it was an interesting kind of backdrop because America was a very diverse uh, place, religiously speaking. I mean... Um, there were people who come from all over the world kind of fleeing religious persecution. And, and you know, some would argue that the appeal to religious liberty probably was as much of a, a factor in the revolution as taxation without representation. But sometimes that's mistaken because there was this kind of, they, they associated a state church with, um, with a monarchy with oppression. So someone like John Adams or let's take a better example would be Jefferson and Madison, neither of them who were very big fans of the church, nonetheless um, were against um, a state-sanctioned church and saw that as oppressive. Matter of fact, James Madison fought on behalf of Baptist, spoke out on behalf of Baptist before the Revolutionary War who were persecuted by um, the Anglicans. Um, and there were, uh, I forget how many, like uh, there was some ridiculous amount of, of jailings of Baptist ministers because they weren't licensed to preach. And so that had a strong influence on Madison's thinking that part of what we're fighting for is religious liberty as well, that there would be no particular faith that was sanctioned. So I think that did inspire. I mean, some of those folks are like Knowles in the second category, particularly the language of the Great Awakening of personal liberty and choice and things like that. There was a, a segment of the Christian population that enthusiastically embraced the war. In the 18th century, in December, where where did shopkeepers allow people to say Merry Christmas? <laughs> is that you know? Is this? Well, you know, Puritans were not thrilled about that's the true. Of Christmas. Yeah, maybe, yeah. I mean, there was as much anti. You know, it's it's interesting. I mean, it was not. Uh, there was a lot. It was a complex thing because. Anti-Anglicanism was associated with anti-Catholicism, so there was it was a complicated, complicated situation. There is a piece, two, couple pieces, interesting lately, because it's Fourth of July time, uh, in on Vox that deal with some of these questions, and one by Dylan Matthews, Dylan Matthew, no Matthews which is entitled Three Reasons the American Revolution Was a Mistake, summarizes, is he, in the opening, he summarizes that he's reasonably confident a world in which the revolutionary revolution never happened would be better than the one we live in now for three main reasons. Slavery would have been abolished earlier. American Indians would have faced rampant persecution, but not the outright ethnic cleansing Andrew Jackson, Jackson and other American leaders perpetrated. And America would have a parliamentary system of government that makes policymaking easier and lessens the risk of democratic collapse. Yeah, I I would say at least the third one. Um, there are many people who are not as thrilled with the parliamentary system as he might be. But it is an interesting question. I mean, would America look more like Canada, for instance? Now, I think there are a lot of other factors uh, involved. I mean the whole situation south of the border, what that would, what would have evolved there. Um, again, I mean, what would, what would the Napoleonic Wars look like if we were still part of England? There's a lot of what ifs there. Um, and it also presupposes that would England, if England 
for instance, still had southern colonies and it was making money off the cotton industry, would they have, you know, would they still have um, had a different approach to the slavery issue? I mean, it's an interesting question to ask because this is some of the same reasons that the United States kept slavery uh, would have become economic factors for the uh, British Empire. And again, uh, we sh- should not uh, forget the exploitation that's involved in colonization and the whole system. I mean, the majority of the wealth and goods go back to the mother country. Yeah, this is why when people say like, well, you know, Barack Obama, you know, somebody on the right say, well, he's he's got an anti-colonial ideology. I'm like, isn't that what we are? <laughs> I, thought, I thought this whole country, like, our raison d'être is, hey, we don't want to be colonies anymore. So if you're like, well, you know, we don't have the guy, that's a very strange, strange thing. But yeah, there's another piece uh, that was uh, on Vox this week, and this is by Jeff Stein, and, and the title is "The American Revolution Was a Huge Victory for Equality." Liberals should embrace it. Subtitle: Left is turning its back on the revolution. Here's why that's a mistake. And he goes on to kind of look at the sort of contemporary intellectual current in in academic circles, which tends to be left of center, saying things like. Um, Elias Isquith and Salon says our founding fathers fetish is strangling America, the disastrous consequences of childish hero worship. Forget the founding fathers, says Barry Gowen in the New York Times Book Review in the summary of the major academic research. This is, you know, he's surveying the scholarship. The God-given or nature-given rights they claim for themselves include the right to hold Africans in bondage. And then he quotes uh, Dylan Matthews, who I just talked about, saying the revolution was a mistake. And... The typical here's another quote. The typical strategy of those on the left now is either to ignore the founders on the grounds that they don't do elite history, or to point out their hypocrisy. Jefferson, Jefferson, Madison, and Washington owned slaves. Writes Pincus. I don't know what his first name is, or if he just has one name like Madonna. <laughs> Pincus, the Yale University professor. Well, see, to me, I think there is, uh, in some levels, the same intellectual mistake that some people on the right make where they want to say, you know, the folks for a while who were carrying around the constitutions in their pockets saying we need to get back to the constitution or the people who, who, you know, this whole argument. And again, I'm not a constitutional expert, but the whole argument about the original intent and, and really it's Scalia's ongoing legacy <clears throat> that we have to get back to the original intent. I mean, I think to um, make our history, you know, better than it was to make these folks, the founding fathers, um, superhumans. I mean, you can go into Capitol Rotunda and surrounded by, you know, Latin gods is a picture, you know, of Zeus, which is, which is George Washington, (laughs) you know? So, you know, there, there have been times when we've gotten, when we've romanticized, I mean, that uh, book that was written by the president of Westminster Theological Seminary that, you know, was this huge argument why uh, George Washington was an evangelical Christian. Well, he, he, George Washington was not an evangelical Christian. The evangelical Christians, quote-unquote, of his time recognized that he wasn't an evangelical Christian. What did they know? <laughs> he didn't take communion. He never talked about Maybe Jesus. Maybe I think about germs. <laughs> no, I mean, George Washington would be, if you're going to broadly categorize, he would have been a liberal Christian of his, of his days, kind of what eventually becomes Unitarianism. Uh, had would a you hot- put Ben... 
Franklin in sort of lecherous pagan category. <laughs> I think he would be a new age. He's a he's a new age Puritan. I like. <laughs> but no, I think the fact is that these are people who believed in an active deity. I mean, he was not like Jefferson and Madison. He believed in a God that was intervening. So did John Adams. But it certainly was not the Trinitarian Christocentric faith that many of us would hold to as. as as Christians and 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 what we would call Orthodox Christianity, I, I I mean I'm not judging. I'm just saying we shouldn't make him be something that he isn't. On the other hand, for those on the left who just kind of try to judge everything through the eyes of their own time, fails to understand that you know each age on one level needs to be judged on its own merits within its own context. I mean. Uh, for, for instance, the, the desire to change the Woodrow Wilson uh, school at Princeton uh, because of some of Wilson's ideas. Wilson had a lot of bad ideas, but you know that doesn't diminish that at that particular time in history. Wilson though was pretty right. I mean that. It, it, I mean Wilson was as far as twentieth century racism goes. For the I mean that was pretty. Oh yeah, he was. No, I, I'm not. I'm not justifying it at all. I mean the same thing when people go back and. And look at Lincoln. I mean, Lincoln does not hold 21st century progressive ideas. That doesn't make him any less the most important president that ever, ever lived. And, and by the way, Abraham Christ. Lincoln, Vampire Slayer. It's one of the greatest films. Like, I mean, I'll tell you what, I when I watch it, I thought this is gonna be so silly. It is so great. Like it is it is just I I can't say enough good about that film. For a for a, for a van I love vampire movies though. So that being said, like, I have to qualify my opinion by because I have sympathies in that. But as far as like a pretty fun vampire film, it's great. Well, the only thing that terrifies me about that is you know that some freshman somewhere in a college history exam talked about what did Abraham Lincoln do before he was president? He was a vampire slayer. And how do we know he wasn't? <laughs> All right. Well, what are the implications? You've already begun to read what some other people feel are the implications of the American Revolution. Why is this a um, why is this relevant to us, Scott? By the way, before we say before we get into our own opinions, I want to quote something from Stein. By the way, from Vox, he quotes Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln once remarked that I have never had a feeling politically that did not spring from the sentiments embodied in the Declaration of Independence. He says, you know, he's hardly alone. He points to Frederick Douglass and the early abolitionists who spoke about their mission as fulfilling the revolution's promises of racial emancipation, that the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, the, the launchpad of women's rights movements in America, where Elizabeth Cady Stanton authored the Declaration of Sentiments, a huge part of that is directly lifted from sure. the Declaration that Eugene Debs, uh, the most successful socialist presidential candidate, not from Vermont, uh, also worked <laughs> with a framework established by the revolutionaries. I like the 4th of July. It breathes the spirit of revolution. Martin Luther King says, you know, uh, this is, Stein is saying that his praise of the American Revolution is more than mine in this article. And, um, you know, a lot of revolutionary egalitarian movements in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries in France, Latin America, Haiti, communist Vietnam, and Hungary that have explicitly cited the American Revolution's egalitarian aims as inspiration. So he's kind of saying that, that you know, it's sort of echoing your, your sentiment, that, that, that this is, despite some of the historical ambiguities, that if you look, if you're... A person, Stein's argument is, who's celebrating liberative politics mm. for all people right. of all classes, races, genders, that, that actually the revolution has been your friend in, in that, like ideologically, right. rhetorically. And I think, you know, if we w could have 
you know, we could have been on the better side of history in a number of times if we could have understood how inspirational that revolution was and also what was it was inspiring people to be. For instance, Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> if we could have seen Ho Chi Minh as the George Washington of Vietnam, who he he emulated and not tried to save the French's face, for instance, there's a whole lot of suffering, a whole lot of death that may not happen in uh, in Southeast Asia. So um, I, I agree with you. I think there's this, this inspiration, and that's a great list. I mean, it, another, being here outside Philadelphia, the Liberty Bell. If you just trace the history of what the Liberty Bell, that symbol, how many people and how many groups that has inspired, it's it's pretty over, it's pretty overwhelming. So again, I think this great experiment uh, that was born out of a lot of mixed motives uh, that people of faith disagreed about then. That you know, in essence, we forget that the that the Revolutionary War was a civil war. Um, more troops in Georgia and New York fought for the British than they fought for the Rev, you know, the American Revolution. Uh, in South Carolina, it was a guerrilla. War. I mean, uh, I'm not always one to suggest Mel Gibson to be a great guide for history, but if you go back and look at the Patriot, and he's basically inspired by Francis Marion, uh, that's the kind of guerrilla warfare that was going on in South Carolina. Just yesterday, I visited a marker of this militia captain who had been captured in Highland, New Jersey, and hung there, and he was hung by some British loyalists. In eighteen or seventeen eighty two, and it was really the fact that the, you know they were down the coast about twenty miles, and those were those were militiamen, you know, fighting for the revolution, and their neighbors, you know, were constantly battling back and forth, and uh, so we, we it's important to remember that uh, this nation was born out of ideological conflict, ideological conflict has been part of who we've been from the beginning. And it maybe should put the current kind of debates and rhetoric in some kind of perspective. By the way, let's just note that we are recording like less than a half mile probably from a place George Washington slept. Right. We're George cool. Washington overnighted, maybe for a couple of nights, here in Langhorne, Pennsylvania, where it is littered with revolutionary Absolutely. monuments. There's a revolutionary graveyard uh again right around the corner from from this our little recording bungalow hideaway in my uh lower level of my house the bunker it's <laughs> like a bunker it's more yeah. of a bunker than a bungalow it could be you know which is might come in handy in the future exactly uh that and you know william devane peddling gold on a, my favorite cable news network <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh yeah so i think like two things i, I think like it's interesting to note and Mark Knoll makes note of this. There's no serious religious reflection on on the, or very little serious religious reflection or exegetical reflection in the 18th century. Most of the time, like nobody went to obvious texts like Romans 13, right. where Paul is saying, "Pay your taxes to the pagan emperor, who was probably worse than Charles <laughs> and definitely than George III, uh, yeah, George III rather." Sorry. Um, uh, you, you know, the, this is so like on a ba <laughs> on a base level. Like, I, I think the, the this is you know some issues in the New Testament are complicated, right? You know, right. And, you know, should we baptize infants or not? To, to infants or, 
This is not a complicated one. Like, you know, no, it's, it's I, a, I, just, think, I think we all can agree that Nero was worse than George yes, III. Yes, and, and, and Paul seems to say that, you know, that rev- violent uh, uprising is not appropriate. So that's, <laughs> that's just not dealt with. No, what is done is George is Pharaoh, Moses, George right, Washington is right. Moses. And so there's a kind of, which is a tradition that has stayed with us in sort of, you know, I think uh, Stanley Harawan said that America is a country that lives off the moral capital of its wars. Uh, he right. also says that we're the only country that has the unfortunate, had the misfortune of being founded on a philosophical mistake. Now, that sounds like overstatement. What he means by that is that basically in the European democracies, there's a pre-modern tradition that 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 gets democratized. So there's a sort of Judeo-Christian, there's an Italian tradition, Spanish. So the, right. And he thinks that like the excesses of Enlightenment modernity, the excess of uh, uh, sort of celebrating human autonomous reason, the excess of individualism, the, that, that sort of stuff, that that's imported without without a, a significant of a counter check. And so, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that to, I'm not editorializing either way. I'm just saying the, there are, I think that these are things that uh, at least could give us reason for pause as we consider, you know, the American tradition and how it, it and marrying it with the Judeo Christian one. Yeah, I, I think it's a complicated history. Uh, uh, you know, I, I've said this uh, again and again. Those who say that America was founded as a Christian nation just don't have any sense of the history. But not to take into account how influential religious language, religious sentiments. Again, I think, you know, someone, again, like John Adams, who was a liberal, um, you know, uh, for his day would be a liberal congregationalist, Unitarian leading. Um, He didn't like Calvinists, didn't like Catholics. But his language and his thought world was as influenced by Locke's ideas as it was also influenced by the ethos and language of this idea of liberty, which starts out as a biblical kind of uh, personal liberty, as a biblical concept is thrown out in the preaching of the Great Awakening and the calling to individual individual account for their salvation, that you are not defined by being a Catholic or a Baptist or a Presbyterian, but you're defined— by you know your relationship with Christ, this kind of anti-sectarian, uh, in some levels anti-authoritarian Christianity, you know, I think had a strong influence on our national consciousness, or it really fed on a on a fertile ground for those kind of individualistic ideas. Anyway, yeah, yeah, it's my friend Mark Oppenheimer wrote. And congratulations, Mark. He's a new featured op-ed columnist in the LA Times. And this is his first op-ed piece. I think it came out Friday uh, or maybe Thursday. And the title is Flags Are Great for Holiday Celebration, but Hyper-Patriotism is Un-American. And he says, look, who wouldn't love 4th of July? And he loves flags on the 4th of July because um, he says it, you know, it, remind, it reminds him of things, uh, some of the greatness of our country. But he says, Sim- we need symbols but symbolism too often replaces rather than complements thoughtfulness. The great Israeli scholar Yeshua Leibowitz once wrote that most Israeli Jews have no content for their Judaism other than a piece of colored rag attached to the end of a pole in a military uniform. Leibowitz's rag on a pole is often re- reworded in wonderful Yinglish, saying 
as a schmat on a stick, a phrase that really gets at the absurdity of venerating a piece of fabric. The Judeo-Christian tradition has a name for that heresy, idol worship. Like many houses of worship, my synagogue hangs an American flag in the front, and an Israeli one too. I wish we wouldn't. If I face the Torah scroll, I'm confronted by those two schmats on a stick. Yet the Torah is the opposite of a crude symbol. Like other great books, like the U.S. Constitution, for that matter, it invites us not to simplify, but to enlarge our thinking. It invites, it invites indeed has been improved by interpretation. On the 4th of July, flags make me think about a war fought for democracy, a subsequent struggle to make that democracy better and more inclusive, and most immediately a holiday, a day off, so free people can enjoy some extra leisure. But the rest of the year, flags make me uneasy. I know their owners are checking out my lapel and probably my front porch, and I know what they're not seeing. Hmm. Yeah, I would, I would add, um, you know, flags on the graves of uh, soldiers who died for our country. I think that 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 merits people who sacrificed. I mean, you know, I, I buried some people who there. You know, it, it took sixty years, but their injuries from World War II finally killed them. You know, and and when you have that uh, uh, honor guard, you know, for those folks, and the flags handed to the widow or the children. I mean, to me, yes, okay, you know, uh, but I I would say this. I think hyper patriotism is antithetical to Christianity. I would agree with, you know, his idea of idolatry. Yeah, at one point he talks about the whole dispute over whose American flag lapel pin was bigger, Romney's or Obama, and that, and whether or not, you know, that that shows you who loves America. It, it's this kind of thing where these, he's, I, I really like, like his contrast, where there in certain moments these symbols are really evocative and make us celebrate. At other times, they actually work against the American critical spirit, yeah, which is part I, of our beauty. Of- I, I'm actually, I'm uncomfortable. I mean, to me, when I see an American flag on a T-shirt or a lapel, I'm uncomfortable with that. That's not where it should be. Um, but I do agree, hyper-patriotism is, is an idolatry and that it's not at all, I mean, um, it, it's so different in the spirit from what the average, you know, the average person uh, fought for the person beside them, fought for their homeland, Um I'm not saying they weren't driven by ideals, but uh, it's been my experience that the people who really face combat are the people who don't talk about war. And I say the same thing. I think in some levels, being a patriot means that you live out the ideals, all the ideals, uh, you embrace the all ideals, and part of those ideals are being tolerant of people who don't necessarily agree with you. I mean, that's part of what the vision of our country was at the beginning, it, it, it certainly had continually falls short of that. Uh, and But the hypocrisy is part of the story, I think, as well. Yeah, and this is where I think, like, a healthy dose of, like, simul justus et peccator, at the same time, sinner and saint. I mean, yeah. I think, like, tomorrow we commemorate a country that has committed some awful sins and also has graciously offered the world some hope and imagination for what life together can be like. And so I think it's that kind of sort of gracious uh, understanding. And the only, you only need, you only te- you have a gracious understanding because you know there's grace needed. Yeah. So I think in that kind of perspective, we can all say, may God bless America. Yeah, and as Christians, may we continue to be salt and light. Be lovers when I read our fortunes.
hands together I've got some real estate here in my bag So we bought a pack of cigarettes And this is Wagner Pies And walked off to look for America As we boarded a greyhound in Pittsburgh This shipping seems like a dream to me now It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw I've come to look for America Laughing on the bus Playing games with the faces She said the man in the gabardine suit was a spy I said be careful, his bow tie is really a camera Toss me a cigarette, I think there's one in my raincoat So I looked at the scenery She read her magazine And the moon rose over an open field Kathy, I'm lost, I said Though I knew she was sleeping Jersey turn back, they've all come to look for a man. 